Hi, welcome to 10 CDs for a Penny, the show where we talk about mild music mags and culture and stuff. I'm Jackson Maine. With me this week is John Waller and Pablo Petrucci. We're going to be talking about Spin 2004 with the Vines on the cover. Vines were a big deal at this point. They were going into their second record. I didn't really uh, follow them past their first record, although I really liked it. Uh, I went to their show in 2002. It was the first time I ever got super drunk at a show. Uh, I don't really remember it, but I remember it being a great time. So the Vines article wasn't actually that interesting, this cover story, uh, mainly because Craig Nichols, the main guy, is kind of this eccentric burnout with nothing to say. He actually seems like a really annoying person. Uh, I think the uh, interviewer, Mark Spitz, was super annoyed by him, but he ended up getting some good content out of it anyways. So we spent most of this episode actually just talking about rock and its future, and if it has a future and its past. Uh, We tried to define rock. We didn't really get there, I don't think, but it was definitely a great conversation to have with these guys about the state of pop music and rock music and how it's evolved. If it is still evolving, I don't think it is. But in any case, we had an amazing time talking about this and rock in 2004 and if it was maybe the last great rock movement to happen. This was also one of those issues where they said, you know, bands were going to save rock and save us from other bands, I suppose, which is a common thing. You have to have a band save you from another band so that you can all latch on to something new. So join us as we dive into March 2004. Spin Magazine, where Pab talks a lot about how Nirvana was way better than the Strokes. Flipping through, I find a very expensive iPod mini ad. Which yeah, on, yes, which is on, this is the best ad. <laughs> so it's on <laughs> cardstock. It's, it, this is, yeah. Just, it's a two-page I mean, spread. Yep. And the little iPods here, John, this may not be apparent to you because you're looking at a digital copy. The iPods can be torn out. These are cardstock things. These are little iPods, and they're they're the exact same size. They're life-size iPod minis. They can be torn out, which I assume is so you can test it out to see how it fits in your pocket or carry it around and show your parents because you wanted them to buy it. I don't know. I don't know. It's a. It's almost like um. You know um. Cologne advertisements for cologne where you take the card out, the uh-huh. the thing out. Yeah. And it has a scent. It's a little bit like that, but there's four of them. Right. And they're all different colors. And different colors. So I this was my first iPod. Was the iPod Mini? I would have gotten it. Oh, this, yeah? Would have gotten it this year. It was a really big deal. I think it was a little cheaper than the original iPod. What's the the next one? The even smaller one that was called. Oh, the Nano. The Nano. The Nano was beautiful. It was this full-color, like, digital-looking yeah. thing. It was, like, a year later, not even. I was like, you guys didn't have this technology last year to make this. You made the Mini with analog. The world's smallest 1,000-song player. So gorgeous. I had this for <laughs> years. So I kept this thing going for way longer than was socially acceptable or cool, anything. Everybody had moved, like five iPods yeah. past me and I was still using this mini. Oh, I see. And what so, about now? Now it's just my phone. I I yeah. never thought I would live in a world. Right. I never thought I'd live in a world without CDs. And then I never thought I'd live in a world without <laughs> as soon as, with hey, iPods. It, as soon as I owned both a cell phone and an iPod, I wanted them to be one device. Yeah. As soon as I had one in one pocket oh, and wow. one in the other, I was like, okay, I'm done with this. I was just <laughs> waiting. I'm like, when is someone going to combine an iPod with a cell phone? I'm never the person looking to the future going, oh, that's they're never going to be able to match this. And, of course, in right. you know two years, of course, yeah, exactly. it's completely gone. <laughs> iTunes I... is gone. <laughs> I wish I could go back to this iPod mini and see what I had on it because it was just – that was the era of just right. downloading off of LimeWire and – Right, exactly. Random yeah. stuff, like anything I was thinking of. Like, it's just, a, it would have been a ton of random songs. There was barely any albums on there, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, from my first, right from my first iPod, I prided myself on having an organized library. And I, I like, because I had the, the first iPod color. Oh. With the color screen, and you could have artwork on it right so i made sure to get all the artwork as much artwork as i could and i remember <laughs> once a friend of mine 
like taking my iPod and scrolling through it. And he said to me, John, your iPod is a pleasure to scroll through. And it was like the best <laughs> compliment I got that year. Uh, okay, flipping through to uh, page 26, we have this this little article that says, We Got the Beat Down by Mark Spitz. And it's which rock stars are secretly tough. They only have two people here. And then they kind of have two uh, like runner-ups, Bjork and Eddie Vedder, who didn't do anything. They have Jack White, who punched out the guy in the Von Bondies. And then they have Chris Martin, who also punched out a guy. I feel like they put together this little article just so they could talk about the fact that Jack White punched out the lead man of the Von Bondies. And I remember this happening at the time before... I feel like before this article even came out, I saw another little thing where this guy got punched out who was also a Detroit band in the Von Bondies. And I remember thinking, am I supposed to know who the Von Bondies are? <laughs> like, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, They're framing it like me. he punched out the, 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 I can't even find his name. Where is, what is his name? Jason St- Stolzmeier. And I'm yeah, like, Stolzheimer. Stolzheimer. And he was, and, and he, beat up the lead guy of the Von Bondies. And I thought, who the fuck are the Von Bondies? <laughs> That's how they became known, though, in a way. I know. The greatest career move this guy ever had was getting <laughs> punched out by getting Jack White. Beat out of him. By and then subsequently, the, the last what article in this issue, they have a little feature on the Von Bondies who went nowhere. I didn't know one song of theirs. They were this afterthought. Oh, come on, come on is the song they were known for. I know, but I looked it up, and even at the time, I didn't know it. Oh, okay. And so I like that. I think they tried to, I mean, they obviously tried to scoop up a bunch of people in the Detroit scene after the White Stripes like got Blade big. Was, but I think New York kind of won. Everybody ended up knowing that all the New York bands and the White Stripes at the time were really the only export from Detroit that anyone really knows. So yep. that, was my, that was my joke for the past, right when that happened. It was like, Man, that guy, he made a great career move by just getting <laughs> punched by Jack White. And Jack White's a And it's like, guy. I still don't know why it happened. <laughs> but that's the funniest thing, was the story was spread, but no one ever knows what the whole point of it was. I'm going to post this picture. He got a serious beatdown. This guy got the yeah. shit kicked out. <laughs> right, yeah. And partly, it was a story, too, because it doesn't happen. In, like You don't hear stories of like no. like that in indie rock circles or whatever. No. Usually it's people being super passive aggressive with each other. Yeah. It's very rare. It's not like I'm gonna punch you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't fuck up my my guitar playing hand. Okay, so the first important thing in this issue is the editor's letter, and I feel like I should just read this first paragraph because it sets up the entire thesis of yeah. what I want to talk about, but also this issue. So the editor's letter is. When the Strokes, the White Stripes, the Hives, and the Vines emerged in 2002, music magazines, like Spin, hailed a new rock movement that was revitalizing a genre stale with cartoonish rap, metal, and formulaic post-grunge. Critics raved about the return to guitars and smooth, smart songwriting. Fans were bemused by the band's goofy sense of cool. Rock seemed to matter again. <laughs> I'm like, are you stopping there? Because I, that is quite the sentence. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's I so know. sad. I don't know if I should keep <laughs> going, but in 2003, the White Stripes and the Strokes returned with acclaimed album releases and respectable sales. In 2004, we await the Vines, the Hives, and second wave acts like Jack White punching bags, the Von Bondies. <laughs> Fe- <laughs> featured on page 80. Right, exactly. No, but there's a lot like that. Rock seemed to oh, and matter is an is italicized. Yeah, that's rock true. seemed to matter again. Yeah, Thank okay, God. but like to who? I know. Well, I okay, but before we even get into that, okay, part of it is <laughs> the way this guy's writing the editor's letter. The rock seemed to matter. Those are common tropes that writers do mm-hmm. to sell magazines. Is yes. part of it is to try to talk about they want to like sell something. Yes, that's a good point because the way they're writing it, they always write it like this. They always have to make a statement like rock yeah. is back. Rock is going to yes. matter again. Exactly. Every year. This is it. The, this yeah. this this album is the return to form. This album is when we're going to get back to rock, guys. But um 
I do feel like in terms of the overall topic, um, I do f- it. I did get the feeling like a lot of labels and music critics really, really wanted rock to be relevant again. Okay, so I'm gonna do this right now. Define rock. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> romp. I, I know that's a that. I know I it's like, a huge question, but I feel like we have to do this almost off the bat to get through right. this because I gotta say I I I don't know if I really can define rock. Right. And you know, I mean I think yeah. I could do a very broad stroke definition of it of four people in a band with guitar, bass, singer, drums making music out of that dynamic. There's rock and roll. That's from the fifties. And then we yep. went into the 60s, and I don't even consider a lot of 60s music rock. I consider like 70s rock. Zeppelin, Deep Purple. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Those are like rock bands. They rock. Mm. So I can't define it because there's just been 60, 70 years of, of band culture. Different iterations of, of just, and styles. Of just guitars and yeah. drums and bass. And then what is it? I, I don't know. I agree. So can you define, can you have a better definition? Well, you? like, you know, I heard uh, Lawrence Krauss say once, he said, uh, it's like, it's like pornography. You can't define pornography, but you know it when you see it. I think you know I what I mean? I think I can define pornography. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, what? Well, but. It's I, people I fucking would agree. on video. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> okay. I, I think I understand Pablo's point in the sense that Rock is is very subjective. So in the same way, like you bring up pornography, in the same way that pornography can be somewhat subjective, like there's sort of a universal definition, but at the same time, um, different people can have different opinions on what is pornographic. Mm-hmm. At the same time, different people can have different opinions on what rocks, what music rocks. Right. Defining rock for me would be, yeah, it's... Uh, guitar, drums, um, you know, bass guitar. It's usually performed live, vocals, and it has an attitude yeah. of some kind. Okay. And that's where things get iffy because this editor's letter, Rock Seemed to Matter Again, it's mm-hmm. funny because I was never a fan of Limp Biscuit and Corn and all that. Right. But I can say for sure that they mattered. Uh-huh. And they so, rocked. And they were rock bands. Yeah. So there's different, there's so many different types of rock bands that, you know, throughout the history of rock, there's this sort of ebb and flow of like, you know, rock and roll into British invasion into there's Prague, there's Sabbath and Zeppelin, uh, the birth of metal and stuff yeah. like that. And then you get into punk and new wave and the 80s with hardcore and then hair metal and then grunge comes along and then um, so-called alternative and then new metal comes along and it's just this they're all rock bands yeah it's just it's the flow of, of different types when you when you just say the word rock it's so broad that you can't you can't possibly define anything with that definition when you say rock because to me when i talk about rock i i tend to use the term guitar music this is guitar yeah, music i agree so when and john when you just said alternative that was my biggest beef when i was a teenager saying what is alternative everything just became alternative I, it wasn't the rock section it was the alternative section but every single band was in the alternative section no doubt was in the alternative section. Green Day right. was in the alternative section. The Chili Peppers were in the alternative section. There was there's all completely mm-hmm. different bands. <laughs> but yeah. it just it, everything just always has to have one blanket thing. One blanket definition to like fit into to label a generation. And in the 2000s I feel it was emo. Then everybody just started saying the word emo. Emo was just rock bands again. It was the same thing. They're, they just had to label it so they could so they could sell a bunch of records to kids. Yeah. But see, I would well, I feel like I feel like with 
rock, there is like the the blanket term. And to me, rock just encompasses everything from like the 50s onward, and it's all rock. And then you just have like subgenres of rock. Of course. Well, yeah, so like and the 60s thing is... rock, 70s rock, um, 80s, like, you know, the Smiths, obviously very different than Van Halen, right? Right. Um, and then you have the subgenres, and the subgenres tend to be uh, popular according to whatever the zeitgeist is in that moment. So like emo is very much of its time. Like the word really matters in 2004. You know what I mean? And what's considered rock in 2004 is a big deal because it's like, oh, it means the vines as right. opposed to Limp Bizkit. Yes. When I didn't give, I don't care. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> About that distinction. Well, I just, and it's, it's one thing that's always kind of bothered me is I, I've always been bothered by that taking issue with the labels and taking issue with the yeah. subgenres and stuff. Now, the alternative one was very broad, but I always felt like it made sense where it came from. Sure. That, um, you know, like it came kind of out of grunge and when weirder, stranger rock kind of got more exposure. Yeah. But, you know, when you talk about something like emo, well, yeah, when I hear the word emo and I think of the early 2000s, yeah. I think of a very specific thing, and I think, maybe not super specific, but I also think of something that I didn't listen to. So within rock, there's so many different types that you can't just say, oh, I'm a fan of rock. Yeah. Would you ever say that? I'm Because I wouldn't. No, not because anymore. There's a lot, well, there's a lot of rock. There's always been rock bands that I don't like. Yeah. Even though all my favorite, like my favorite music was rock music, you know, guitar bands. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would never have ever claimed that I was a fan of, of rock. Yeah. But it's also, you know, in terms of the blanket labels, like people always complained, whether it was fans or artists themselves complained about the label indie, mm -hmm. but I always felt like the label indie made sense. It always kind of made sense to me. That even though there was lots of different types of music under the indie rock umbrella, if I heard that a band was an indie rock band, I made certain assumptions that I don't think were unfair. That I thought, oh, there's something off kilter about it. They must be. They must have some kind of peculiarity that makes them not have wide appeal. Right. You know. Um, so yeah, that's just my little rant about how subgenres aren't always bad and labels aren't always bad. Right. No. And it's not just all cynical. That's what that, I think that's really my point is that coming up with these labels isn't always a cynical move because right. as a fan, you want to be able to say, this is the type of music I like and rock is too broad a term. No, that's, that's a, that's a really good point, John. I shouldn't have said everything was alternative and everything was emo when, although that is correct, it all came from something else. So alternative, yes, is I would feel the same the same sort of definition as indie rock. Alternative was something born out of the eighties with, you know, like eighties grunge and dinosaur junior and uh, REM, uh what am my I book Yeah, like and Beat Happening, bands like that. They were alternative bands. That was like even that was the name before the like the indie rock got got popular. And then alternative, of course, just became a blanket statement for everything. And it's the same thing with emo. Emo was a very small genre, niche genre in the 90s that got blown up. And then all of a sudden you just had to say everything was emo in the 2000s because it became the blanket term. But no, there's certainly nothing wrong with subgenres because we have to say subgenres. You won't know what anyone is talking about. You can't say rock. Rock is Nirvana and rock, it's is, so general. rock yeah. is Nickelback. It's the same. Like, <laughs> exactly. it's, it's, <laughs> you mentioned bands like Dinosaur Jr. Um, in the 80s. And a lot of those bands that became known as alternative or indie, in the 80s, they considered themselves punk bands. Yeah. Like, I think Dinosaur Jr., Nirvana, probably Sonic Youth as well, to a degree. Like, they all considered themselves punk. Mm -hmm. And so what was called alternative was used to be punk but now it's popular 
and makes right. money yeah. and is mainstream. <laughs> yeah. So they couldn't really call themselves punks anymore. Yeah, I think there was a clearer divide then, like in the 70s and 80s, as what right. punk was. Punk was punk was still a new genre. So you could you could you could pretty clearly define punk. That was something I was going right. to say as well. Punk has just become I think there's rock and there's punk. So rock has like almost no definition, but punk is kind of the same thing now. Punk was punk rock and then it became punk and then there's a million subgenres under punk and anything I would consider like kind of weird and just uh, pushing the envelope is punk. Yeah, the book uh, uh, "Please Kill Me" to me is like the definitive book on the origins of punk. Yeah, if you want to know where punk came from, just read that book. There's a million yeah. books out there about punk and where punk came yeah. from, the history of punk. Don't read any of them. Just read "Please Kill yeah. Me." <laughs> I think the way Spin is talking about rock here is more specific. Yeah. Um, just whatever's relevant. like the vines, the strokes. That's what they're talking about. I it's feel. it's always about saving rock. That's what they're talking about. We got to save yeah. rock, but from what? From other rock? <laughs> what are we saving it from? But Nirvana was I mean. like, Nirvana was saving us from another they're rock. To, <laughs> they're trying to advance a subgenre. They're trying to push that because mm -hmm. it it's part of what the zeitgeist is in two thousand four. They're trying to push well, the vines. The Strokes, that's what they're selling. They're saying, okay, we need to sell these types of bands because we like these bands and we don't like Limp Bizkit. Yeah. Well, that's, so and they're that's, defining yeah. it. They want to define it for you. This is what magazines do all the time. They want to talk to you like they're the parent and you're the child. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, we're going to tell you what this is. This is what rock is. This is this is what's good. This is what's shit. Limp yeah. Bizkit sucks. Yeah. The Vines, the Strokes, they're better. Right. And you see this in this magazine. That's what you see. How many white guys like liked <laughs> indie rock? How many ner how many nerdy white guys were writing this magazine? Oh yeah. You know, I'm sure it wasn't entirely guys. I mean, I don't know. I think the editor's name is such a good question. It was here. Sia Sia Michelle. Yeah. I mean, that could go either way. No, she's a she's, but, a, she's a woman. Yeah. Um, the answer is three hundred twenty-seven. That, that that may actually kind of go to my point that. And to your point, uh, Pablo, about like, you know, I, I think it can be said that I hated Limp Biscuit and Corn. Did I feel like rock need to be saved from them? No, but I'm sure there was a heck of a lot of people who did, who like resented this um, more corporate kind of jockish. Yeah. And that's the parallels with Nirvana and hair metal. And like GNR, that by the end of the 80s, rock, um, there's a lot of rock bands that seemed very, um, you know, cocky, yep. misogynistic. People wanted them rock to be cool again. Yes. And that's, that's the unspoken thing here is that what they say rock matters again. Yeah. But what they're actually trying to say is rock is cool again. Yes. But cool to who? That's the thing. Right. That's what oh, I yeah. No, no, of course, of course. Because to millions of people, those people are incredibly cool. Guns N' Roses right. and I agree. And Motley Crue, they had legions of fans who thought they were so cool. They were not cool. And Limp Bizkit. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody, yep. I knew tons of people who thought Corn and Limp Bizkit were incredibly cool. Um, yep. So they're always, and I can't believe this happened 10 years later. It was that we had this giant corporate hair metal cock rock movement, and then all of a sudden it just got devastated by grunge, and only took another like six years before it happened again. And then we had corn yeah. and Limp Bizkit, and this entire same sort of giant bloated metal movement that had to get stomped out by the Strokes, who just stared at their feet and smoked cigarettes and yes, didn't do anything on stage. Right, but. To be clear, grunge it, it, it kind of like eliminated the previous genre, uh, like the previous gener, whatever, whoever is popular before them, not because critics liked them. It's because they had a visceral response to an audience. Right. It wasn't mediated by the press. Right. It happened by accident and outside of it. 
that's a real connection. Right. And these people, I think part of like some of the writers, what I don't like is they think that they're arbiters of what's going to be, you know, resonating with an audience. They're not. Right. It's, it's such a magical thing. And it's never going to happen because somebody wrote a good article. Do you, you know what I mean? Do you saying this band is good? Do you think that this movement of what I would say at the time was garage bands? I thought it was a garage. Yes. sound. That's what people were defining it as. Strokes, yeah. white stripes, hives, vines. Do you think that happened less organically than grunge did? Because I feel one like million percent. One million percent? <laughs> yes. Okay. I remember when the strokes came out, I remembered feeling like, oh my God, there are a bunch of hipsters trying to force me to like the strokes. I felt so forced to like them. Grunge wasn't like that. You know what I mean? Like even sure. when Geffen signed Nirvana, they had no idea what they had. Yeah. Nobody did. Nobody saw that coming. Mm -hmm. And what the record industry realized was, oh, we were so far we were so like behind the trend and we didn't know it. And mm -hmm. record labels don't like feeling like that. They like to feel like they can anticipate what's going to be popular. They don't like it when accidents happen. So with the strokes, they were like, we're going to make sure that accidents don't happen. We're going to be ahead of the curve. We're going to tell you this is the next big band. Okay. And it didn't happen because the strokes, you know, there's you can't manufacture you don't, what grunge was. But you don't think the Strokes were a big band? Nowhere near the level of Nirvana. Well, that's true, but they were still really big. No one's going to yeah. be as big as Nirvana was because it or kind Pearl of Jam. it just happened. I feel that at the time, uh, the Strokes were as big as Pearl Jam and Nirvana for a moment. Like with that new generation... For sure, no way. They, they were no way. It was very big. They were a very big deal. Not, not, not. They didn't have the longevity, but uh, I feel there's, I feel there's a bit of Beatlemania with, uh, with the Strokes. No uh, way. Wow. I mean, just okay. Uh, just in, I, I bet, like, just in terms of record sales, like Pearl Jam sold like ten mil, like I think ten or Versus sold like ten million records. Okay, that's like, but the do you Strokes remember never sold anywhere near that? But do you remember the hype that summer and fall? Because I remember there the was, hype. It was I don't, a very compartmentalized hype. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I think there, I think there was an organic quality to this time in the sense that all of the bands, well, maybe not all of them, but like Strokes and White Stripes came from very different sort of things and so did kind of interpol which who kind of came after mm -hmm. but you've got the strokes who were a bunch of new york guys who i think there was a bit of organic hype that the major label seized upon and accelerated mm -hmm. So there was the strokes with that with like getting on the major label right away and having that mega hype for you know a couple of months um the white stripes you know by the time they got big that was what their third album i think yeah uh -huh. and they had put out i think at least two on uh on an, an indie label yeah they were on sympathy for the record industry at least one and so they had kind of been around a bit so i think their hype grew fairly organically yeah um, and they just happened to sort of hit with that big album uh, the year after the Strokes did. White Blood Cells. You know, whereas grunge was major labels sort of pushing this stuff. Um, and while I do agree that they're, you know, in the, in the case of the Strokes, there was definitely sort of an inorganic acceleration of their hype. Um, and then after afterwards finding all these other bands that you know where are the vines now i mean are the hives still a thing like I mean, now, it, now. you know <laughs> i mean all the labels sort There's of piled on right now. all the labels sort of piled on after it became like a thing right but yeah. i think it started it's you know i don't i i i, I can't I'm, i can't be cynical about how it started and mm -hmm. i, I I, I totally see it like it was seemed to me very cynical from the very not cynical in a bad way, but just like the record industry is just they're just going to do what they do. And they just didn't want to get caught um, with their pants down, so to speak, was my impression.
You know what I mean? But like, there's a huge difference, uh, though, because this was 2001, and this was one of the first rock movements to appear after the internet, after Napster. And I think when you add on the fact that at the time, their sound was very unique, and after several years of, like, you know, new metal, I think a lot of people... Um, like heard the strokes and were like just got really excited because mm -hmm. this was the type of thing we hadn't heard a new band like that in a long time yeah i hadn't heard when i first when i finally heard it i hadn't heard a band that sounded like the velvet underground yeah they had something special they had something that sort of made people perk up you know, especially with the crowd that the Strokes appealed to at the time. Which which was, to me, college kids and hipsters. Like, people that are in the know are people that like the Strokes. But that's my it's point. Not, but the that's people, not people... what that's not what Nirvana was. It's not what grunge was. Sure it's not it was. what the alternative rock explosion sure was. was. Sure it was. It, no, was, it, was, all about, it was all about in the know. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. Like, okay, I'll give you an example. My friend, he goes, in 1991, he was uh, uh, 11 years old, and he said, and he said, um, my mom came home, and you know, like the, like, fitting tribute, 10 CDs for a penny? Uh -huh. The mom came home with a bunch of CDs, and she said, and he goes, uh, she had this green CD with the baby on it. He goes, we didn't know, he goes, me and my brother didn't know what it was. We just played it, and he goes, and as soon as we heard it, we just started smashing everything in our room. We would just start play fighting or whatever. You play a Strokes record, you're not going to get that response, right? Cool. Similar with like a band like Rage Against the Machine or whatever. There's something about the style of music that is eliciting a response in people that has nothing. There's no media. There's no marketing. There's no nothing. It's just the actual quality but, of music. There's something there. The Strokes don't give that response in people. It's more yes, like, they do. It's they more do. like you're smarter and hipster. And more like like Velvet Underground, the twelve year old isn't gonna go. Oh my God, fantastic record! But that doesn't it's not really... gonna have that. No, but the, the, but the, the, really I totally disagree with you on that point about the Strokes, because the Strokes were the first danceable rock band uh -huh. in years. Yes, arguably, in the twelve year olds my... don't care about that. So Kids what? Don't care about that. Teenagers don't care about that. But that's what, what I'm does... saying. To be culturally relevant. It, <laughs> To talk about like the band, but that's, we're that's a different about. conversation. But what though. does you, that now prove? You're, you're taking the conversation into like, are the Strokes Nirvana? Are they as culturally relevant? But that's, that's a whole what different conversation. But that's what yeah. the editor's talking about. Okay, when true. When he's saying well, rock is dead, is rock going to be exciting again? That's what he's referring to. Because in the early nineties, right, right, okay. completely. That's what I'm talking about. And it was. That's the thing. It was exciting again to a lot of people. People hate. There was a ton of people who hated new metal and were sick of it, and it was so overproduced. It was a minority, gigantic. a pretty small minority. Pab, I gotta disagree with you. The Strokes were a very, very popular band, and like everyone I knew, like this was like the new movement uh, yeah, of, of all these garage group, bands of our age group, though. That, you know what? I think I, I think I kind of okay. White college kids of a certain age who were sick of something, that's really, really specific. I think I see what you're saying, and I think maybe I do agree with your core point, which is that, like, um, yeah, did, at the time, did the Strokes appeal, like, how young did they go? Yes. You know, Not young. I was Not 21, young. I guess, I was 21 when they came out, yep. and it was amazing to me. But that's true. Like, I don't know. Were 12-year-olds getting excited about the Strokes at the time? I don't actually know if that's true. So I guess if that's... And I think I understand what your point is about, you know, the Strokes were exciting to me, but, um, yeah, like, Nirvana and Grunge had this kind of visceral feeling that could appeal to younger kids. Um, it transcended a lot of boundaries Whereas right, right. the Strokes is very in-house, in-group, within a certain, you know, it's very right. in-house. Okay. And I guess, I guess you're talking about like the editors here are are talking about these bands as if they're going to be the bands that last us for the next 
10 years. Yeah. And none of, almost none of them were. And not only that, that record labels were dreaming and salivating at the prospect of another moment like that because they yeah. were trying to cash in. They wanted another 10 million selling record. That's how they think. And I'm saying that's not going to happen. It, that era is over. You know what I mean? That was in the 90s and that's it. It will never happen again. And what labels were trying to do was anticipate the next explosion. And it didn't happen. It happened with like, it moved over to rap with like 50 cents selling 10 million with Get Rich or Die Trying. That's where the, the zeitgeist moved to. If you're going to talk about whether or not rock will ever die, you have to consider the internet. With the internet, as long as rock music gets made, it will get discovered and it will live on right. and it will continue. Sure. So, you know, there's talking about rock as in its place within um, the music industry. And then there's just talking about, well, will rock ever die as something that you know, people will stop making it? And I mean, because as long as it gets made, you know, it, maybe it won't be a cultural revolution anymore. I would say, like, it's dead in terms of like being the dominant art form dominating like the uh what uh the charts and record sales i think that's dead but it will always be like a subgenre in the way that like anything becomes one but what i was gonna say is to kind of segue in that rock music is all about guitars and i don't think people are really caring that much about guitars anymore that's the point okay so that's another thing that i've thought a lot about because you know, guitars for the longest time were the coolest cheap instrument you could buy. But I think one thing that happened is that computers came along and all of a sudden the cheapest instrument could have been the family PC that was already in the room. Yeah. And I think one thing that happened post 2000, this century, is that the guitar was no longer necessarily a teenager's entrance into making music. 100%. Or the simplest way to go. And so while guitars are still popular and people still like playing them, um, all different kinds of people, it's not the only way to, or not the simplest, cheapest and most convenient. Uh, route. Yeah, the most convenient. I mean, the most convenient one is now your phone. Like, phones come with uh, GarageBand, you know? And you could just buy a $100 MIDI keyboard and download, you've got GarageBand, and all of a sudden you've got 100 instruments. But but uh, to, to, that does coincide with the general point, Jackson, I think, right? Like, like 2004 is really, like, the a real shift. I mean, it's it's not specific. It's not that specific of a year, but it's part of a general shift in in guitar-based culture to more like computer and software-based culture in terms of music, which is hip-hop and produ producers. So like yeah. the, previously the geniuses were Kurt Cobain and, and uh, I don't know, like John Lennon or something or Bob Marley. And then by the early 2000s, the real geniuses were like uh, Pharrell Williams and Timberland. Yeah, that was, the they were having a much... Uh, greater impact because of the shifting of technology rock music for whatever you want to call it, it guitar music it had its day i mean yeah, it did exactly. really well it went on for 60 <laughs> years so we can't complain yeah. that something died <laughs> that it dominated yeah. for that long um but i think yeah the shift to the fact that you could like make anything you want exactly what john just said you can buy a laptop you can buy a midi keyboard you can make anything and you kind of don't have to put a lot of effort into learning an instrument, let's be honest. And I mean, everybody likes convenience. So I can see why that is appealing more than like playing guitar, like perhaps. But I. Well, I, I know even like for me, I mean, I um, in the 90s, like I got a guitar. I was a guitarist in a band. Um, I'm still a guitarist. But yeah, when I got my family computer and I got my own computer, and I discovered audio programs, all of a sudden I was creating entire songs entirely out of samples mm -hmm. or I was creating, right. you know, like trip hop songs or some, um, stuff like that. Like there's maybe there's an alternate universe where I sort of kept doing that and mm -hmm. just 
<laughs> dropped my guitar like a like a rock and was just like, oh, I'm making trip hop on my computer now. Yeah. Just because I could. And it wasn't yeah. because it was easier. It wasn't because it was just a new, exciting thing that could be done. And for me, it was new and exciting at that time. But I'm sure it's exciting for a 13, 14, 15 year old now to figure out how to use GarageBand on their phone or how to use the Moog synthesizer on their phone. It's like after reading people like Marshall McLuhan, like you start to notice like bigger picture stuff. And I'm not that I agree with everything McLuhan says, but one of the takeaways is culture will always be extremely sensitive to any shifts or changes in technology. And it's like, try to picture what music was like before electricity. Now the future of music I feel like is gonna be so radically shifted for the next 20 years, just by virtue of like computers and software. For sure. It's gonna look so different. And if you go to page 46, it's pretty funny that Spin used to do these things uh, at that point where they would sort of pick a subgenre and go through all the most uh, important records of it. And during this entire issue talking about rock, we have the article on essential synth pop and they pretty much address it up top as kind of an afterthought dismissed by rock chauvinists as a trendy haven for fops, wimps, geeks, and cyborgs and beloved by <laughs> fops, I don't know what a fop is. Um, wimps, right. geeks, and cyborgs as computer world innovation on punk, disco, and soul. Synth pop has endured and mutated for more than two decades. But it, but the way they kind of frame it is, oh yeah, there was that. You know, that was happening. But as I read this and looked at this magazine in 2004, I just wanted to go into the spin offices and go, you guys have no idea what's coming. <laughs> right. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you you mentioned like synths now and now that i think about it it seems foolish in 2004 to think that any music actually matters and what i mean by that <laughs> is okay there are bands there are albums that came out at this time that i still love but i think by this time music was just shifting so quickly i think to 2008 Four years after this, and I felt like every new band was a, was a guy on a synth and a girl singing. You know, I'm sure that when the kind of synth turn started, it wasn't some cynical thing from the top. It was sort of like, you know, bands that were recording two or three guitar albums, and then they were tired of the guitar. For sure. You know, because there's always <laughs> bands that are like, oh, I've done the same thing for two records. I must do something different now. Mm -hmm. And then the, the natural thing is you go from guitar to synth. Yeah, you're absolutely but. right. <laughs> but to me, the bigger thing is, is like in terms of what you're saying, Jackson, I think it might be over in terms of music being relevant in the way that it used to be is more my, my feeling. What specifically? What do you mean? When someone like Elvis Presley came along or like Little Richard, there was a genuine shift. It marked a shift in culture. Mm -hmm. Like the norms changed. The way people saw how they could relate to themselves or to other people changed. That's a shift. And music was like, in a sense, a vehicle for that. I'm kind of, I, I, I I'm kind of thinking like, I think that era is done. Like, doesn't matter the genre. There's no new thing that's going to really shock people or push something so far beyond what's culturally acceptable. Do you know what I mean? That goes, I think, beyond rock and just pop yeah, music. Yeah, exactly. Jazz. Yeah, like pop music was created and now it exists. Yeah. So it can't be created a second time. But I'm because, just saying music, not even pop, just any music. Because music is just sort of this amorphous cloud of a whole different types of things that you can't have that same oh, right. I see sudden one like yeah 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 you know, elvis it. was like one thing dropping from the sky yeah. on the culture <laughs> but now music is just so much so many different things so many different tastes that yeah i agree with you there isn't going to be that one thing anymore so do you think what, what do you think jackson do you think there might be another music will have another moment like that 
another Elvis Presley? Well, yeah, like obviously maybe a completely different genre, but some sort of moment where it's like, holy shit, this is changing the culture. I think it would have to be in conjunction with something else now. I don't think a song or a band or an artist is going to change the way we think, but I think that in conjunction with a message and obviously what we're dealing with right now, like in the, in the current state of the world with, with racial protesting, which has obviously been going on for decades and decades. But I feel like the, if something big is to happen, it, I don't know if it can be with music anymore. I don't think that's the way the world is anymore. I don't think like, you mean Elvis, Elvis created teenagers, is what he did. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, I, and I mean, the Beatles created the band, in my opinion. They created what a band is that we now yeah. know it. I, I don't I don't know if music is going to do that again. I think it'll be uh, I think it'll be another medium. Another. All those early rock and roll artists. It was, you know, it was something brand new for kind of all the teenagers to latch on to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now I think because there's so many, everyone has their own musical tastes mm. and everyone can have their own tastes catered to that. There is much less likely to be one artist who can capture everyone's attention. Mm. And in a way that affects the culture, not yeah. just talking about charts or sales or whatever, but okay. Wow. High five! Yeah, <laughs> I feel like I didn't even cover everything Fuck. that uh, I don't no even way. like. But I covered I most of what I was. Doing I, I there's more I want. I it's weird. Oh, okay. Like, you want to keep going? I no. I do, but I mean, it's like been like two hours. I feel like we have to do another episode. I mean, I would have talked about the article on Probot. I would have. <laughs> I would have looped that. What did you in. find interesting about it? That was when Dave Grohl was emerging as this person who was collaborating with everybody, and I thought he was really interesting at the time. I really don't care about Dave Grohl at all anymore, but at this point, um, I I I went through like I like the first Foo Fighters record. I didn't really care that much about the rest of their stuff, but I liked them. I liked Dave Grohl. I thought he was a really interesting person. But I mean, now he's just Dave Grohl. Now he's just this demigod of. He's the last rock star right now, in my opinion. Like that's still creating from the past twenty five mm. years. Good point. Yeah, they're I can see that. Like still going with. But at this point I thought he was really cool and he was collaborating with Queens of the Stone Age and then he put there this whole record where he's like, I'm just gonna make a metal record with a whole bunch of different people I like and I have the clout to do it now to get Lemmy yeah. into a studio and just record that's a, a dream. song. I know. And so that's what he did. And it and it, it turned out really well. <laughs> yeah, and and I this was also and this was also too. a point too, like when there was this kind of like new rock being getting pushed out. No one was listening to Motorhead. Motorhead was not a yeah. cool band. They were a metal band. I don't know if Motorhead were ever a cool band until the two thousands. I think there was a lot of revitalization of coolness. The Ramones were the same thing. The Ramones were a cool band, and then they became kind of an afterthought in the eighties. And it was like, okay, it's just the Ramones doing the same thing again. And then they, you know, kind of just faded. And then they came back because all of a sudden all these people who were influenced by them in the early 2000s made them cool again. And then all of a sudden yep. Dave Grohl collaborates with Lemmy and all of a sudden everybody's listening to Motorhead and realizes, oh, Motorhead's the exact same music that I've been listening to and all this stuff that Dave Grohl's doing. And he kind yeah. of... So I thought that was a really interesting project. It. It's it's sort of like I for I don't know I don't know about you guys but for me it's like that's like the fantasy, it's be like I get to make an album and it's with everybody I ever wanted to, yeah, <laughs> to yeah, like yeah. write with and it's like that's the dream and 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 that Dave Grohl still has, I mean fame aside that it's just somebody who loves music and is making what they want to make right, that's always fun and that song he did with Lemmy he also did with the guitarist from the band The Obsessed. And the obsessed were this like really weird. No, sorry, they weren't a really weird. They were just like this metal, this heavy metal-ish band from uh, from DC that just hung out with all the hardcore bands. So that was kind of like metal and hardcore and punk were kind yeah. of at odds at this point. It was like you had to pick a side, and the obsessed were this like super underground metal outfit 
that were hanging out with Minor Threat and Fugazi. And Dave Grohl brought him in, <laughs> which was amazing. Right. No one yeah. knew who the Obsessed were except Dave Grohl because he grew up there. I still don't know who the Obsessed are. You, you <laughs> literally, the only people who know who the Obsessed are are people who listen to like Discord Records and DC bands, DC hardcore bands, right. because yeah, they're I... friends with them. It's one of those things where it's like, it, I don't know, the Frogs or something like that. People know the Frogs because the Smashing Pumpkins like them or people know. And Pearl Jam like them. Yeah, too. like that sort of thing. I remember having that. My brother had that album. We used to listen to it. I'm going to do one more thing, guys, and I'll try to do it quick. What was number one in the charts? March. Oh, yeah. Good. I'm excited about okay. this one. <sighs> okay. So I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm going to do this fast. March 6th, 2004. The Can we do some guesses first? What is, no? this, what is this? Billboard? Billboard. I do like to guess, but I always, but I always like to kind of run through because it always just has like such a nice little portrait of what the that era was. So I'm gonna do 20, but I'm gonna rush through. I'm just gonna tell you the uh, 20 through 10 here, because you cannot have. So 20 is Alicia Keys' Diary of Alicia Keys. Um, Yeah, that makes sense. Then 19 is an afterthought. It's the 2004 Grammy nominees album. Eighteen, a classic. Yeah, eighteen. <laughs> dangerously in love by Beyonce. This is her thirty-fifth week on the charts. Her debut. Wow. <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. Um, here's a great portrait of this of this era. Number seventeen, Soulful by Ruben Studdard. Oh, he was a American Idol, right? Yeah, Wasn't he was he? the American Idol winner. He ended up. He, oh yeah. He was a number one. He had a number one record. I, I when I was looking at this, I. I guess I wasn't shocked, but it was surprised. I was like, did yeah. he actually have a number one? And, of course, you can't have a Billboard chart without Beyonce or Nickelback. Number 16, The Long Road. Yeah, that makes sense. That you can't 2004. Have, you cannot sure. have a Billboard chart without either of those two people. Um, number, <laughs> It's true. Every, every, every single one of these, those guys are on it. Number 15, here's another great portrait, In the Skin by Jessica Simpson. Wow. Yeah. 2004. Yeah. Uh, the era of like reality shows and yeah. she was on them. You know what I mean? With Nick Lachey. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That's, that's, Confusing that's exactly what it tuna is. Tuna and chicken, like not knowing. <laughs> I don't even know what you're you talking that? about. No. She, don't there's don't a, there's explain a, there's it. A, there's a segment where Jessica Simpson goes to Nick Lachey and she goes, she's eating tuna. She goes, I want to know, is tuna chicken or fish? No. And the uh, maybe I goes, do remember that. He goes, he goes, baby, it's tuna. And she goes, yeah, I know it's tuna. But what I want to know is if it's chicken or fish. <laughs> oh, no. Yep. Oh, my anyway, God. So it's, a, it's a reality TV show classic. Anyway, that's I think of that whenever you say that's, Jessica Simpson 2004. That's gorgeous. Um, <laughs> number 14, <laughs> Songs About Jane by Maroon 5. Yeah. You, you thought they would go away, but you'd be wrong. Um, <laughs> Number 13, In the Zone by Britney Spears. Uh, I don't even know which one that would be. It was probably what yeah, she that was makes doing, sense. like Neptune stuff. Um, Good for her, considering uh, yeah. this uh, uh, spin issue trashes her. Calls her the worst solo artist. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're never right. The critics are never, ever right. They pan shit, and then it makes $100 million. Um, <laughs> number 12, Only You by Harry Connick Jr., that's a surprise. I mean, not really. He's a contemporary, you know, soft rock. No, I mean, or, like, sorry, I mean, when like I think of 2004, artist. I just think of, like, all the other people you mentioned. I'm like, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Like, Britney Spears, Nickelback. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Alicia Keys. Then you're going to remember go Jackpot by Chingy. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Number 11. Okay. Okay, okay. Here's um, uh, number 10. A Crow Left of the Murder is the name of the album by Incubus. That's the name of the album? I yeah. don't remember that This one. is This is... Uh, this I think it's reviewed in this issue. Yeah, they only have... I listened to the one song. You know the song, but it's not one of their like major hits, but it's definitely a radio song. It's, and you got angry. It's 1984, something like... I can't remember. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know that one? 
Number nine, the very best of Cheryl Crow. Good timing, too. I, I love Cheryl Crow. Yeah, it was perfect timing. This would have been like the 10-year the span of Cheryl Crow. This would have been a great time. For a great she cashed in is what happened. God she damn, made right a shitload of money. Yeah, she's a genius. Um, number eight, Kamikaze by Twista. Twista. I don't know this one. Twista, yeah, he kind of had a R&B slash rap thing happening. Obviously, he was very yeah. big. He was number eight on the charts. Yeah. This guy, I have Missed no idea. This guy, number seven, I have no idea who this is. I Don't Want You Back by Iman. Yeah, I don't know this one either. He was an R&B guy, and he debuted this week. I listened to his stuff today. I have no clue. <laughs> um, okay, number six, a super safe crooner that like everybody's mom loved. Not Michael Mi- Bublé? Not Michael Bublé. Next one. Crooner? Yeah, same vein. And it's not it's not Harry Connick Jr. And it's not Michael Bublé, but he's a crooner. Yeah. I have no idea. Closer by Josh Groban. Oh, I don't even know his music, so I don't know what genre he is. Oh, okay. He's, uh, the, he's that. He's safe stuff. <laughs> he's safe stuff for your mom and, I don't know, dorky 20-year-old. Music for, yeah. <laughs> for white moms. Yeah. yeah, okay. And you can't have a uh, billboard chart without a country artist. We have When the Sun Goes Down by Kenny Chesney at number five. Okay. Also oh. a guy I don't know. Okay. I, I'm familiar with the name, but like. Okay. We're down to uh, number four here. Number four, giant hip hop uh, act. This was a double record. Outcast. Yes, speaker box, the love below. Yeah, this was a brilliant record. You know, and this is, these it, like two. brings back good memories too. Uh-huh. Like, you know, it's like the Paul McCartney thing where you said like that music brings back your memory. Brings back memories is obvious. He goes, but when when a, when music brings back good memories is not so obvious. And I feel like a mark of a great band has that quality, and Outkast is one of them. That's a beautiful sentiment, <laughs> and it's so true. No, and this this record just spanned years. It kept going. Yeah, it was amazing. Exactly, it was a brilliant thing to do that these guys put together. Number three, giant like post new metal act because it's like two thousand four, female singer. Evanescence. Yes. Fallen by hey, Evanescence. No, number three. Number three. Oh, they they were huge. You forget, like that's that. You must have been selling a lot of records to be number three. She, they're at number three. Pab, guess how many weeks they've been on the charts with this record? Fifty-one weeks. No way. They're at number oh three. Oh my god. They've been on for a year. Number two, gigantic hip hop artist. I mean, absolutely huge debut record 2004 2004 2004 it's his debut record he's at number two um it's not 50 cent it's not 50 cent he's still going today man for better or for Kanye, worse, West? Kanye, Kanye West Kanye West the college dropout number two wow doesn't it feel like even older than that for some reason that's what it feels like to me it does actually I mean, it, for the amount of time that that guy's been around, the amount of material, yeah. and, like accolades he's had, it seems yeah. like a long time. But I guess wow, sixteen years is a long time. That really, to me, Kanye, what that album really is time capsule for me. It really takes me back. That was an excellent record. For all of Kanye's faults, that record, that record is very good. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I mean, we don't have to go on and on about that. Number one, I don't know if you guys are gonna get, but she's a big artist. It's a female artist. Number she? one, it's a she. Two thousand four. I feel like when in doubt, you just pick Celine Dion. Yeah, you. you <laughs> she's like one of those artists. Is like she's got to be or Shania Twain or something like. You'd be on the right track. Um, I, I wow, think. it's not Celine Dion and it's not Shania Twain. No, but it's like that type of like. It's a female artist piano player oh Nora Jones Nora Jones very good Pat. well you you gave it away okay, with the okay. I was about, to say, Jones. I was about <laughs> to say Nora Jones I was about to say Nora Jones but you yeah, did it muted. but you did it <laughs> you lose <laughs> all right that's Nora Jones, it that album was huge yeah it was. Huge. it was gigantic yes it was massive it it I think uh it's been it debuted at number one it looks like <laughs> it's 
really freaking big. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't get any better than that. Like it, uh, unless it, it debuted at 52 weeks. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't <laughs> get any one. better unless you're Evanescence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Evanescence. All right. Uh, that was March 2004, one for gentlemen. the books. Yeah, that was great. Thanks so much for being on, guys. Thanks for having me. You're, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. It was good. Thanks, gentlemen. Talk to you soon. Stay safe. Later. Peace out.